You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. This session was originally broadcast on February 14, 2023. Let's have a listen. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a discussion I'm going to have here with Terry Sanofsky about uh, the long story of neural nets and how they got to where they are now. So I guess, Terry, I'm, I'm curious to begin with, when did people first realize that there were neurons in the brain? Well, uh, I think that, uh, you know, the idea of a neuron, by the way, as, as a unit of the brain goes back to Cajal. Uh, he was a Spanish neuroanatomist uh, around 1900. And he used something called the Golgi stain, which is like a, a part of a reduced silver method for, like for photography, which stained neurons in their entirety, but only like one in a hundred. And so that produced beautiful fills and he drew them and uh, was was spectacularly successful. And, and, and at that point, that was the considered the unit uh, that was called the neuron doctrine. But uh, but in fact, uh, so, so had, but before that, what did people think the brain was made of? I mean, there must there were anatomists before Ramani Kajal. So okay. what did they think the brain? Was oh made yeah, of? yeah. Well, uh, the um, I mean, there were theories that go back to Descartes thought it was a pneumatic that these these they they knew about these uh, uh, pro processes, you know, that they look like uh, wires, but they thought they were uh, little tubes that carried fluid. And they are indeed, but not the pressure. There was the signal was not the pressure, so so they they knew about them, and I think that they they probably had uh, various theories over the years. But uh, I think it wasn't until Galvani and others, again, you know, at the uh, early part of the twentieth uh, century, who uh, discovered that electricity was being carried by these nerves. Uh, and that kind of started the modern era, the the electro electrophysiological approach to understanding the signals. But so people knew, I mean, people obviously knew from Volta and the frog's legs and things that muscles had to do with electricity. But when did they, how did they figure out that, that things in the brain had to do with electricity? Well, uh, let's see, I think that you know, I can't put my finger on in a specific experiment, but I, I would say that it was not much of a leap from the uh, stimulating. Uh, they actually they stimulated the nerve to the muscle, right? So they they had the idea that this was coming from the brain, a uh, signal of transported along the nerve. Uh, but I think that it wasn't until uh, Hans Berger probably, who was able to record EEG signals from the, the scalp and show that it was modulated by your level of, of, of uh, arousal and you know what you were thinking that he saw that it was modulated and 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 that was a very it was a microvolt electric signal uh, but that that was a clear indication that there was electrical signals flying around inside the brain so when was that like 1920s or something or was that um... no no like 19 10 something around there 12. So it was around the same time as as electrocardiography was being invented. Is that right? Or, or... Yeah, well, well, that well, that was EEG, electroencephalography. That's exactly right. That no, but was... I mean the the heart version of that, the EKG. Oh, oh cardiology. Yes. Okay, electrocardiology. Uh, 
Yeah, that 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 was probably about the same time. I think you needed amplifiers that were sensitive enough, and I think once you right. have, then you could record all over the place. Right. So okay. So people decided there were there were all these kind of wire like things in the brain, and did people? I mean, after Romani Kajal, did people? Was there a huge sort of development of of people dissecting different parts of the brain and figuring out lots of detail, or not so much? Oh yeah, the, that was a a big business because uh, there are a lot of parts to the brain, and there are many species that you could look into. And Kajal was one of the still with the leaders in his lifetime. He he wrote the book that is still used today because. It's not just scientifically interesting, it's artistically interesting, because what he would do is to uh, look through his microscope all day, no photography there, that it was all uh, artistic in the evening, he would sit down and draw what he saw, uh, you know, uh, the shapes and sizes and the way they're connected, and they're beautiful, they're just beautiful art, but it's withstood the test of time in that sense, that uh, we still refer to it. And I often show one of his pictures at the beginning of my talk, just because it's just a, a, a nice way to honor uh, uh -huh. our foundations and also just a, a very nice, pretty uh, drawing. But so so why weren't they using cameras, by the way? Because I mean, photography certainly existed at that time. Well, you have to talk to Kahal about that. My, my guess is that it was easier for him to draw than to worry uh -huh. about... Uh, photography and and trying to keep track of things i i think photography the dog row types i think were developed at the time but those are really required very high illumination and i'm not sure they were as had the resolution that if that you needed at that point right but but okay so then then we're getting you know 1920s and things like that there were electromechanical devices that were people were building as you know uh, to do machinery kinds of things, and there was people investigating the brain. W when did those connect? Uh, you know, the the I would say that the uh, the the foundation of modern electrophysiology was uh, in that period, the twenties and thirties, uh, and I think it was, you know, the the uh, what what would uh, the the types of experiments people would do would be to stimulate a part of the brain. And then to see what would happen, uh, and and you know you could do that in animals, uh, and even in some cases in humans. So if, actually, what was most most of what we know about localization of function actually came from war wounds in World War One, where people got shot. You know, part of their, their brain was uh, was. Uh, was taken you know was was uh like in the back of the brain right there's a common you have a, a shell that takes away the have the posterior part of the brain and you're blind and lo and behold that that's they, they were able to map out the different parts of the cortex now that was anatomy um but the but the, you know in order to be able to stimulate and 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 to record really required uh development of other techniques for example uh, they had, uh, of, of all things, a smoked drum that they used for recording electrical signals. Uh, before, you know, the, the photography was used routinely. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I have to say that uh, I, I haven't read that literature <laughs> in huh? detail, but it was by by the forties. Certainly, uh, things were going full blast. People could record. They had a really good idea of what were called action potentials. The, the, there's a famous set of three papers that Hodgkin and Huxley published in 1952, which was the now, you know, a classic 
explanation for the uh, basis, the ionic basis of the action potential. And so I would say between you know 1930 and 1950, that was a golden period where the new techniques were being developed. And by the way, uh, what you know, as you know, in science, you know, everything depends on the techniques that are, are available for the instrumentation, the way that you uh, take the data, analyze it. And that's that just changes with every generation. Right, right. But so, okay, so big, big moment for neural nets, 1943, McCulloch and Pitts. Um, and at least that's my impression of the sort of the big moment for neural nets. I, the, um, what was, I mean, McCulloch, what, what was, did you, did, I, I don't, I don't know all the dates. Did you ever know, did you ever meet McCulloch? No, I've never met him. I've, I've written an obituary for him, but I've never met him. I've, I know people that have met him. He was at MIT at the time. He, he was a, a very uh, interesting character. Uh, he, he, had a medical background, uh, but he decided he wanted to go into understanding the brain as a, a, a more uh, basic approach. Uh, and he was charismatic. He attracted a lot of really interesting people around him, really smart people. Pitts was a, a, a mathematical genius, but he had psychological problems. And, and but you know, McCulloch sort of uh, was able to uh, uh, buffer him from the vicissitudes of of life, and and together they published this in, this paper that, as you say, did have a lot of impact. Uh, and what they showed was that uh, what was known about neurons at the time it was that that they had a lot of inputs, and then and then they had a single output, which was either a spike or not. So that kind of is like a binary event, although it's not really because the timing is continuous. But nonetheless, it was a simple output. Summation, which we now know is not linear, but uh, a single output. What they showed was that with that simple uh, McCulloch-Pitts unit, uh, you can construct logic, you know, AND gates, OR gates, and and since you can from that you can compute, you know, you do universal computing. They said, well, neurons can universally compute. So that was the the the, the thrust, and I think it had an impact primarily on the mathematicians, but. But it it did uh, in in a sense it 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 introduced the idea that the brain might compute something like a computer maybe not exactly but that it was doing what it was doing was computing, and so I mean the origin of that that effort I mean so McCulloch I think had been a a psychiatrist and so on and was was I think when they wrote that paper in Chicago, um, and uh, then I mean uh, this was it's a paper that. I think you know its its only references are to you know things like you know Russell and Whitehead's Principia Mathematica things like that. There, I don't think it has any uh, kind of um, uh, physiological references, so to speak. It's, it, it presents itself as something a bit like a Turing machine kind of presentation of uh, you know this is how right. we might imagine brains work. That that's true. That that that's why I said that it was uh, written for a computational audience or more mathematically oriented audience. But there was another paper he wrote about the same time, which was much more influential on the biologists, and, and we now call the neuroscientists. That that's a relatively recent uh, area, uh, the term neuroscience. Uh, but it was uh, let's see if I can remember the the title. Oh yeah, what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain. That was like that was the Jerry Letvin thing, right? That, that was that, that was that was with that Jerry Letvin. Oh yeah, that was that was later. That's true. But I, I'm I guess what I'm saying is that his influence on the Brain science was really uh, much more 
uh, that paper had a much uh, larger influence than his early. Because my impression is, if I if I remember the dates, I might have them wrong. I think like the Jerry Letvin, McCulloch Pitts, frog, what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain. I, that's I when think he that was like end MIT. of the fifties. That's it was it was probably around that you know, end of the fifties. Think so? Maybe. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll have to check. But but you know that was still in the early days. We're talking. No, it had to be earlier than that. Um, let's let's well, we'll we can look it up. But it, it, I think it was in the maybe early fifties or forties. The it's it's um so but I mean the the history because there were other things that had happened right by that time you know Alan well, Turing's the forty three is the is the date that. I think it was. No, that's the original McCulloch Pitts paper. Oh, oh, oh! You're talking about Letvin, yeah? No, that's that's right. Okay. The, um, but, but in I mean, you know, there was a whole development, as I understand it, from, uh, you know, there was, you know, Alan Turing's 1936. You know, this is what a computer might be like, and then the original 1943 McCulloch Pitts paper was sort of leveraging the Turing idea to say, oh, we can make these neuron-like things that can be like Turing machines. Okay, uh, Steve, I just looked at the date. It's 1940. What was? What the frog's eye tells the frog's brain. Really? I, am, I was just looking I at it. It says proceedings of the IEEE, 1940. I think this is the, the, the 41 now it says. No, wait a second. I don't think that is right. Oh, oh. Uh, that, that that was the page number. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's 1959. You're right. You're absolutely right. Okay. 59. Okay. Okay. I stand uh, corrected. Okay. The, <laughs> uh, uh, the um, I think um, yeah. But but so I mean, before that time, from you know, starting in the 40s, I mean, it seems like several things were happening. I mean, there were there was the um, uh, you know, on the more kind of artificial device type side i mean there was the 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 mcculloch pitts paper and then i mean uh, people like john von neumann got into the picture wiener i guess norbert wiener got into the picture um and uh, i mean uh, you know and, and von neumann was writing books like you know the computer and the brain and so on i, I mean what was the uh at that point, there, there seemed to be a whole development of people saying, you know, uh, we're going to make electrical devices and they're going to be like brains. And people started talking about, you know, giant electronic brains and so on. And I, I think, I mean, that was the, you know, in a sense, in some sense, I think neural nets were perhaps the original vision for what computers might be like. Well, you know, that, that, that's an interesting observation, because uh, if you think about it, computers came around relatively late. Right, uh, digital computers, uh, and I think that you know the way that uh, and a lot of people also you know were thinking along the analog lines, in including uh, Frank Rosenblatt, you know, who came up with the perceptron. So that that was an analog device that he actually built it. He physically built an analog device that it was actually a model of a single neuron, a single <laughs> uh -huh. McCulloch Pitts neuron. Uh, no, the, 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 uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the interest in, in building brains or something that works like the brain has waxed and waned for many decades and with a period of about 20, 30 years. 
and, and that was a high period, right? you know, back in that era, in, in the fifties, uh, maybe a little before that and a little after that. Uh, that's when uh, fifty nine actually was also when Rosenblatt uh, published his uh, perceptron paper. But so I think that I mean one famous other data point was the the Dartmouth conference nineteen fifty six. Yes, that at... was a. Uh, that was called. It's called the birth of artificial intelligence. Actually, what it's called is the birth of that word, because people were thinking along those lines for decades before that. I mean, it was. It wasn't like it was a great idea. Suddenly, uh, it, it, I think what really kicked it off was by that time they did have digital computers and they did have they were writing programs and and they were able to write programs that could do interesting things like prove theorems and play games and that sort of thing, and they figured, wow, if we could. We have a computer can prove theorems, which is the highest level of human achievement, you know, cognitive achievement, math, mathematics. Then certainly it could uh, should be able to do other forms of intelligence and maybe even, you know, build robots and so forth. And and that was, uh, you know, it was based on the false intuition that uh, problems like vision and motor control were easy. Why? Because, you know, it's effortless. We don't have to put much uh, a cognitive effort into it and everybody can do it you don't have to be a genius to be able to in fact people who do sports are generally not as intellectual as the people who don't <laughs> but uh the, the um the at that era was really uh kind of an exciting one but then you know it it, it uh i i would say petered out when they began to realize how difficult the problems were and de despite the fact that an enormous amount of money was spent by the government, DARPA, and other and other agencies, the returns were very meager in the right. 60s and 70s. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my impression was there were projects like machine translation was a big effort that was an almost complete failure at that time. Well, my favorite story along those lines is that they, they translated, they had a translator through Russian, English to Russian, and then Russian back to English. And and the, the, the phrase that they tried to translate was... Uh, the spirit was willing, but the flesh is weak. And it came back, it's good wine, but rotten meat. <laughs> but how were they even doing those translations? Was this essentially a textual replacement type of approach? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I, I have no idea what their uh, what the actual approach was, but I think that they, they, they must have had some way of thinking about syntax because Chomsky was using that as the basis of language uh, in that era. I don't think he was that much involved though. I think the machine- No, no, he, he wasn't. Was... No, but he, he, but the people, well, you can't think about language without thinking about Chomsky, right? In that era, you know, and, and uh, if for another reason, then uh, they, people quickly realize that if you just replace word by word, it's gibberish. Just, the, you know, you have to have the right, right. word order, the number, the number, you know, two that, that has to be done somehow, uh, but but the but the other thing is that was completely missing, and they didn't understand at the time was that more important than even word order is syntax. Uh, sorry, semantics, semantics meaning, uh, right. and, and that's really I think why modern uh, neural networks that could do trans uh, language translation are primarily uh, able to do that by. Uh, to, by understand, not I shouldn't say understanding, but by being able to put embed sentences and words into a high dimensional space in which neighborhoods of words uh, share semantics. 
But it is kind of interesting that, you know, very early attempt in, in AI was machine translation. And the technology that's now brought us our friend ChatGPT, for example, is that same kind of technology. Yes, that's um, an interesting parallel. And I hadn't thought about it. Uh, I, th I think that there is something magical about language that really influences humans. By the way, I, I also contributed in a small way back in the 80s. I had a program called NetTalk, which was, um, a, for that, by today's standards, a very tiny network that had about uh, two, 300 units in it and about 20,000 parameters, weights between the units, which, which by today's standards is so tiny that I, I, you know it's embarrassing <laughs> by comparison but it's uh it was we trained it to take in a window of seven letters and to assign the sound the phoneme to the middle letter and we trained it up on a bunch of words uh dictionaries and uh, transcriptions and it did a credible job we we actually uh, recorded you know from a, a, a machine that uh, turned it was a deck talk that deck, deck talk. Yes, I remember, yeah, I remember that. It, it was very nice. It, it, it turned sounds into uh, the uh, phonemes into sounds. And you could actually hear the thing as it learned. And it was it was mesmerizing. In fact, it, it got so much publicity that I was on the Today Show and demonstrating that talk to the world. And even to this day, people come up to me and say, I listened to that program. And uh, it was the first time I, I I knew anything about neural networks, but it it really uh, I I can still remember it. You know, it was one of those moments when you suddenly see something you didn't understand. Well, it, it seemed to be very convincing in in sort of going from babbling like a young child to talking like a more adult character. I mean, that seemed to be it. It, it did that. It, it, it and and we now know why. Okay, so it, what it did was when it's learning, it picks up the most important or the biggest regularities, and the most regular uh, assignment is, ver is verbs versus nouns, right? And and so it, you, it would alternate between a, a consonant and a sound, but it wouldn't all you know it would be the wrong sound, but it would be a vowel. Ba 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 ga da da da. That's it. actually I memorized that from <laughs> the tapes. And then uh, it went through a period where it got the small words right, and then it went through another period where it got bigger words right, but it would often have one of the sounds wrong. And then eventually, you right, you could understand it. It sounded just like the sound of a little kid talking, uh, which which you which was. Uh, and, and let me just explain why that's important. And it's still today uh, it, when people uh, you know critics talk about these networks, they say, "Oh, they're stochastic parrots." Right, there was nothing stochastic about these. They're all deterministic, <laughs> and they're not parrots because there's no way that you could train a network to produce to to, 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 to this English is so irregular in terms of the sounds and the letters and the and the correspondences. There are some rules, but they're always exceptions. And if you keep writing them down, you get a book with 300 pages, but in the same architecture with very very few weights, a few tens of thousands. It was both able to pull out the regularities and the exceptions. The, and it did it by learning algorithm rather than having linguists sit there and write down rules. So it was a, and, and, and the other thing is that it has to generalize, right? Because we can give it new words. Like I, I, I remember giving it uh, Jabberwocky. What? Uh, you know, this is uh, the famous uh, poem with nonsense words in it. Right. it was brillig in the slithy toes the gyre and gimbal in the wave right 
it did a credible job, but maybe not exactly the way I pronounced it, but it was English level pronunciation that you could understand. No, right, right. I, I remember this, a very cool demo. And thank you for publishing the paper about it in uh, my then very young complex systems journal. It was it was in one of your first issues, yes. I, right. <laughs> the, um it, it's um but let, let's 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 go back a bit because I'm I'm curious, you know, the whole question of of um you know, we had McCulloch Pitts, 1943. This is what a neuron might be. This is what an idealized artificial neuron might be like. And then, but that was more, you can make sort of uh, logic out of these things. You could make a Turing machine type thing out of these things. But then I think there was the question of, well, well, you know, in brains, one of the important features is they learn. And I guess sometime, what was it? People like Hebb and so on, was starting to talk about how those artificial neurons would be able to do learning. What, what, but by that point, people had had the idea that the synapses, the connections between neurons, were the places where memory lived. Is that right? Uh, how did how did people conclude that, or what, when did they conclude that? Ah, okay. So the synapses go back to Cajal, we mentioned earlier. Uh, and and by the way, uh, it was it, it's below the level of light microscope, which is about a half a micron. And so it was only conjectured that uh, that's uh, the junction where the signal goes across. In fact, there was a big disagreement between Cajal uh, and Golgi, who at the Golgi thought that there were direct electrical connections between the two neurons. And they 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 hated each other. They they would uh, be uh, at odds with each other scientifically. And ironically, they both won the Nobel Prize together, but they didn't, were not on speaking terms. <laughs> and, Oh, in retrospect, this is very common in neuroscience, is that they were both right or both wrong because there are electrical connections. They're called you know, gap junctions, electrical synapses, and there are chemical synapses, and they both are important in different parts of the brain, different neurons. But but the, the idea, though, that you have memory at the synapses came a little bit later, and, and uh, Hebbian plasticity is, is probably the most famous, uh, but there, there were people before that, Konorsky and others, who had similar ideas. Uh, I think that you know the 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 synapse has an allure, which I think is a little bit overrated. Uh, now you know there's there's a lot of them, and there's no doubt that they change in strength. Uh, so, you know, neuroscience has has really worked out a lot of the details, but uh, it turns out that many other things are also plastic, and 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 in particular. The intrinsic properties of neurons. So, what are they? So, uh, well, first, uh, there is the threshold, excitability, that can be varied. Uh, there are a lot of ion channels in the different parts of the dendrites, the other receiving area, and the uh, the, the spike initiating zone in, in there, the soma, and all of those are also uh, plastic. Uh, or, or, you know that they can be modulated uh, up and down. And 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 so uh, what, what now when, when neuro, neuroscientists talk about plasticity, they really are talking about plasticity of the circuit, not not just the synapses. And a beautiful example of that is stomatic gastric ganglion of the lobster, which has only a few dozen neurons in it, and it controls the, the stomach, the, the rhythms of the stomach. And there are two rhythms; they're very slow, like you know, one to ten seconds. 
there's a pyloric rhythm and a gastric rhythm. And it turns out there are neuromodulators that modulate the intrinsic properties and the synapsic strengths, which can take you from one to the other, right? So the very same network, you can have two very different behaviors. And, and, and in, in fact, in our brains, there are dozens of neuromodulators that do the same thing. Uh, so so that on a, on a shorter timescale, we're talking about seconds, minutes, and, and hours rather than you know days and, and weeks and months. So, so, so when these signals are propagating through like the dendrites and so on, that you're saying that there are different, uh, in, in addition to the kind of the, the synaptic weights or something of the strength of a connection between neurons, that right. there are different sort of resistivities or something like that of the different uh, parts of the dendritic tree? Uh, different voltage dependencies. Yeah, different voltage dependencies, which uh, translates into differences in uh, excitability, differences in integration time, time constants. Uh, differences in the uh, uh, dynamics. So uh, even in within the synapse, for example, there are biochemical reactions taking place that uh, keep track of a history of the signals that have been passing through recently. For example, uh, you know, it's called a trace uh, and uh, and 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 short-term memory uh, is also a term that psychologists call it. And uh, and some of those biochemical reactions, uh, uh, you know, can be uh, modify uh, the size of the synapse, and and, and that makes it more permanent. Uh, can 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 change some of the, uh, uh, the the properties of which ions are flowing through, and 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 how much, for example. Calcium ions are very important, and and that can be regulated. Those ion channels are very highly regulated. So uh, the, the the nature has taken computing down to the molecular level. That's why it's so efficient, and it's right. extremely uh, miniaturized. And and uh, and and it it, it 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 you know your brain runs on less than twenty watts of power, right? And just think of everything you can do, and digital okay. computers can't do, right? But but so we're going to we're skipping to the future and we need to go back to the past here to 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 get this narrative. But but um, uh, you know if if we think about artificial neural nets, which have you know these weight matrices and and biases and so on, um, is the thing that you're describing in terms of of the characteristics of the whole neuron and and its whole dendritic tree and so on, is that captured by that or is that not or is there some extra term that kind of should be in the in the future of artificial neural nets that captures these kinds of things that um, you're now finding happen in actual neurons? Uh, well, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're certainly, if you're a scientist trying to understand the brain, then yes, all those details are important. But if you're just trying to uh, extract principles, then uh, then there are some principles that are absolutely essential. And I think the different, the, the wide range of timescales in artificial networks, there's only two timescales. There's a fast inference, which you know it goes up and down very quickly, and then there is the training, the the back prop, uh, popular uh, training algorithm uh, for for these synapses, uh, the weights in the network, and uh, and that's very very slow. It takes a long time to train these networks up. So that that's a that's the kind of the longer time scale. But in the brain, there's everything in between. You know, there, there's an incredible range of there's working memory. There's all sorts of traces that, that are there. That uh, uh, th th in fact, you can show uh, this is something that psychologists have studied. It's very surprising. 
they've they can show that you know you you can look at you know a, a thousand pictures in in a few hours and then you come back the next day and they'll say have you seen this before and and you are pretty good at saying yes or no how the heck could you do that right it must be the case it left a trace these things left a trace an enormous amount of information came in now you couldn't recall them i mean you might be able to recall a few but you but you can but interestingly you can just, you know if you've seen it before and here's something else which i think is even more amazing um so when i ask you a question you know within a second whether or not you know the answer right you, you just seem to know that well in in the, the traditional computers you'd have to search through the whole memory bank right you have to You'd have to have an enormous uh, efficient algorithm to do that, and and uh, it, which means that the, 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 somehow the brain has used all the machinery and, and all these different timescales in, in order to solve problems like that one very quickly, and and, and survival depends on it. Right. I mean, you know, but in a neural net, the you know the. The information is sufficiently distributed, and the operation of the neural net is such that that same phenomenon of you know you're not searching through anything; you're just running the neural net. That 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 happens there too. I mean, it, it's in a in a more traditional kind of digital computer metaphor where you're saying you know okay. these are things arranged in a file system or a database or something. Right. Okay. So here's what it's like, and this is an analogy, so it's not perfect. Okay. Uh, and also gets to this point that you were talking about in different between logic and what networks are good at. Networks are really good at pattern recognition. In other words, one pass through and you've got an answer, right? It's inference. Right. Okay. So here's here's what kind of computer the brain is. It's like a digital computer in which the instructions are recognize the object in 100 milliseconds. Bang, it does it, <laughs> right? That's one instruction. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, construct a sentence in one second that you're going to just spew out a bunch of words. Right. And 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 a lot of it has been automatized so that it's very efficient, very fast. And, 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 and so you're using these macro instructions that basically can can solve enormously complex computational problems in the flash. And that the reason there was a lot of evolutionary pressure for that, because if you can't recognize a tiger you are toast. Right. Well, let's let's come back talking of, of um, okay, we're, we're, let's go back to the, the, we were talking about how people kind of got from the McCulloch-Pitts idea, which was essentially an idea of, of make logic out of something that seemed to be like the neurons people saw in brains, to then the idea of how would this, how would learning work? And that, that's something, I mean, that has a much more complicated history, as I understand it, in the sense that, you know, the the neurons, the neural net that is in chat GPT, for example, is extremely similar to a McCulloch-Pitts neural net. But the method of training is something that took quite a while, and I think you were quite involved in in figuring right. out how that would work. So the, the uh, you're absolutely right that, uh, that learning was really the secret sauce that, of course, made neural networks... Uh, able to solve all these problems uh, of, of course many other factors go in you know computing certainly uh, but what's what's magical about learning 
uh, and psychologists have been studying learning for hundreds of years now. So we're, you know, it's not like a, a mystery <laughs> that humans learn. But the, the the question was, how do they learn? What's the mechanism? And 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 that was uh, something that uh, was, you know, has has a, a, we were talked already about uh, Donald Hebb. So uh, let me tell you a story about Donald Hebb, uh, which most people, even neuroscientists, aren't aware of. I, I only. I only know but about conceptualization. It. Donald Hubb was a psychologist, is that right? He was that... a psychologist at McGill, and uh, and and he uh, wrote this book, Organization of Behavior, which was very influential. Not because of the book, but because one phrase in the book, which which is that if two neurons uh, fire are uh, activated simultaneously, then the connection between them should be strengthened. That's they call the Hebb synapse. So coincidence of firing leads to increase in strength. That that was the idea, uh, and it was in fact when electrophysiologists actually did that experiment, they that's what they discovered. It's, that was much turns out to be much more complicated. But let me tell you the story. I was asked to write a review of that book in uh, nineteen. It was uh, let's see, oh probably around 1980 or something, but it was it was published in 49. So it's, it's many years later, right? But uh, so I actually read the book and I always thought that, well, this is uh, an algorithm that is for associative memory because you associate an input with an output and that's the, kind of the essence of associative memory, but more complicated when you have interactions in the network. But no, he hated, the behaviorists were very uh, dominant at the time and he hated behaviorism behaviorism is the idea that you know you you could do pavlovian condition you know classical conditioning but also operant conditioning to train animals to do a, a repetitive task you know to, to train them to recognize objects and 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 you know they were using it on humans too humans are also have classical conditioning very very uh, all animals i mean including flies invertebrates but so but i was completely wrong so <clears throat> Here's here's what the problem was that he thought he was solving. It's it's called the persistence of activity. So, you know, if you have a feed-forward network, what happens is the information flies through and then it's gone. But mm -hmm. how is it that you can remember something that happened, you know, a few minutes ago or you know an hour ago, right? There has to be some way for the activity that came in to cause some persistence, like for short-term memory in particular. And the only way that he could think of doing it is if you had some kind of uh, recurrent uh, 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 connections, you know, that would circulate activity. And and then he said, well, how could you learn the new thing, right? Because you, you you want it's not just a delay line, right? It's got to be some way that you've strengthened synapses. And so he had the idea that if you strengthen all the synapses in a, in a line of, as the activity goes through a bunch of neurons, and especially in a circle. That that would maintain activity that that came in for a longer time, and 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 actually that recurrent networks are, are exactly that they that they hold on to information that is given at the beginning of the sequence, and they use that to then uh, combine it with information coming in at the end of the sequence, like sequences of words. So so that that was uh, and 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 he he did he didn't say anything about when you decrease the strength of the synapse. Right, because obviously, if it keeps increasing, you're going to saturate, and and so, uh, interesting. What what uh, 
what people discovered was that the, if this what's important is not that they come in at the same time, but whether one comes in a little before or after within 10 plus or minus 10 milliseconds. If the presynaptic comes in, the input before the output within a window of 10 milliseconds, and you increase strength. But if the input comes in 10 milliseconds after it, the output, then you decrease the strength. And if you think about it for a second, there's a what, what, what's implicit here is the concept of, of causality, because if it comes in before, it could have contributed to the output. But right. if it came in afterwards, it certainly can't. Right. So and, and that's the essence of persistence is that you have persistence of a causal chain. So, that, so that's an actual mechanism that's observed in, in neurons. Yes, that's that's described. been that's been established in the cortex, it's in the hippocampus, and the superior colliculus. It's 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 a it's a universal mechanism. It's not the only one, by the way. There are many other forms of plasticity. I, I gave you a couple examples earlier, but even with synapses, for example, in the hippocampus, there was a beautiful paper uh, that was published uh, just a couple of years ago, like four or five years ago, uh, by Jeff McGee, showing that in the hippocampus, there's another form of plasticity that has a window of one second. And it, it, it's when you're creating a what's called a play cell in a rat, when the rat's running around and you stimulate a pathway and suddenly this neuron becomes active every now, whenever the rat comes back to that location, it's called a play cell. So, so going back to Heb, so what you're saying is that Heb imagined that, that you would learn things by virtue of recirculating that information through this neural net and that if it came through again and it looked like what it was before, then it would be, then that weight would somehow be increased. Was that, was that kind of the idea? Well, at, at every stage, at every point, at every point along the chain, you increase the strength. So now you can, it comes back to the beginning and it activates the neuron again. So it's like a chain reaction. <clears throat> right. You know, it's a very simple idea. And, 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 and it, but, you know, in, in, in modern networks with a lot more connections, it's not a simple chain, uh, but it has a, in a recurrent network. You can like it reverberates. You know, right? It's an analogy with physics. But but so that idea from from Heb did that did that sort of grow into some big kind of chain of things? Because by the time one was talking about things like the perceptron and Rosenblatt and so on, that wasn't a learning system. That was a that was a pure no. no but but it, okay. So the, 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 now here is a really interesting chapter in neural network history, which uh, is is not always, uh, it, uh, uh, people aren't aware, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I doubt if you're aware, but it's, it's very important. There was a period in the 70s, 60s and 70s, especially in the 70s in Japan, when a couple of, of Japanese uh, started actually building things, networks, uh, that, that were Precursors of the ones we have today. For example, we have something called convolutional neural networks, right? And, and they're used for object recognition and vision, uh, feed forward, and and they have the architecture you see in the visual cortex. Well, Fukushima in Japan, who was working for uh, the I think the, the the television company at the time, uh, had this idea of just building it, right? And 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 he even I had the heavy in plasticity. Now he didn't get very far because you know the computers there were, were incredibly slow, but uh, but nonetheless he had the concept and he was given the uh, Franklin Prize uh, a couple of years ago uh, to to uh, you know recognize his pioneering work. And another 
Japanese was, was, was that the, the thing? I remember only this one keyword, the neocognitron. Is that yes, that guy? That's it. That's it. Okay. Well, that's that's it. That's the I was talking about. The I only got one word, but yes, I, I was. But, well, you have you have uh, half the battle is that you can Google it and you find out a lot more. The, but, but the but other so, person, the other person, before I go on, is is uh, Sunichi Amari, uh, who was a mathematician, uh, and he had. Uh, uh, developed networks that are kind of precursors of the Hopfield network. Now they didn't ha weren't the same. Hopfield network is characterized by symmetric connections, but but he had the idea though that you could you could get pattern recognition out of them. And then there's a whole family of associative networks that were came out of uh, Steinbuch from Germany and others. But uh, you know th those have been superseded uh, in, in terms of their right. you know with the architectures and the learning algorithms. But but okay, going going back again. So th these were so there was Heb, and then the next big thing that seemed to be happening was things like the perceptron and Frank Rosenblatt, and that was what late nineteen fifties or something. Fifty nine was the the period when he had his book, and then you know that was uh, when he uh, got a lot. Of, you know, it was a, it was a competing approach to artificial intelligence, and uh, he 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 you know he had. Some demonstrations, which were very interesting. He actually built a giant analog computer with potentiometers for weights, and and he he had visual inputs that he could give it to it, and uh, you know with with photodiodes, I get or you know some kind of uh, uh, way of. But so, in in modern terms, this will be a one level, a one layer neural network. I mean, this was a single. This was a. It, it a was one layer of weights. You're right, one layer of weights, and and and. You know, you, there are a class of problems for which you can actually come up with good solutions that they're called linear predicates, where in the weight space, you can draw a parallel plane that goes through the examples. If they are, if the positive and negative examples are on different sides, then you can do a discrimination between them uh, and it will but, generalize to new inputs. So in a sense, we've we've gone from, you know, the, the one one layer neural net to what, you know, chat GPT is maybe a 400 layer neural net or something. And that's the uh, um... well. That's why they're called deep now. Now th this is it, it, so th there was a a period in history. Now, I remember I told you about the fact that th it waxes and wanes, right? So the in that era, the the early '60s, there was a the resurgence of interest in uh, you know artificial neural networks on Frank Rosenblatt, artificial intelligence by writing programs for computers and so forth, and 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 uh, the uh, the, the, the Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert wrote a really sophisticated mathematical monograph called Perceptrons, where they did an, a really thorough analysis of this, with what I just told you about uh, linear predicates. And, you know, and they show that there are a lot of most interesting problems uh, don't fall into that category. So therefore, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, not a very good uh, starting point. And they, at the end of all this beautiful math, they 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 had this kind of the speculation saying that, in their view, there would never be a generalization to perceptron learning algorithm. The key was that you could learn it from examples, right? That's what Rosenblatt really did, right? He had, he added the learning algorithm, which which was very was Hebbian. Actually, what 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 was his learning algorithm? So what? Was... Oh, okay. Here's what you do: you take the uh, output from, you give it an input, you take the output. And then you compare it with 
what it should be. You know, is it part? Is it a yes or no? Mm-hmm. Um, is, is this a cat or not? And then if it's right, you don't do anything. And if it's wrong, you use that that error to update all the weights so that the next time, you know, the, the weights that should have pushed it above threshold get stronger. The ones that should have pushed it away uh, get weaker. How do you know which ones to change? Oh, uh, you know, there's the gradient. You just see, you just ask, okay. you know, what's, how does the error change with the, the, if we change the weight? So it's the same story as modern. Error, it's, you know, it's exactly the same story for uh, backprop, right? It's, it's error gradient. That's all, it's all so the way So did down. Frank Rosenblatt figure that out? Was he the person who figured yes, out? Yes, that was that the beauty. Out. That's the Percetron learning algorithm. He figured out gradient descent. Now, it was, it was a, a convex problem. That means that the beauty was that it didn't matter where you started with the, the weights. You were guaranteed gradient descent would take you to the bottom, which would be the best set of weights that could, you know, be able to uh, solve that problem if it well, was solvable. What was Frank Rosenblatt's background? What, what, how did he get into that? Uh, he was a psychologist. Yeah, he was a psychologist, but he had very broad interests. And, uh, you know, he was interested in, uh, uh, first of all, things in, in uh, AI or electrical engineering. And so he had a lab where he did experiments and b- built things. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he, he was uh, a polymath, I like would call him today. Right. So this was a time when, when there was early interest in machine vision for military applications, for optical character recognition, for things like that, if I understand correctly. Yeah, well, th- th- that's always been, uh, I think, a practical problem. In, f- in fact, uh, one of the first successes was uh, of, of neural networks was uh, handwritten digit classification right. uh, for the post office. This is Jan LeCun. By the way, I want to finish the story with Martin Minsky and Papert because this 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 really had a huge impact. Right. They they speculated that there would be no generalization of that learning algorithm to multi-layer networks. And that's where Jeffrey Hinton and I started. In other words, if you talk to anybody in AI or engineering, what they would tell you is that forget it, you're working on something that for, which is a dead end, and we have mathematical proof of that. Right? There was no mathematical proof. It was, it was just buried in this very complex mathematical book. But it was, it was purely speculative, right? There was, there was no theory behind it, except you know. But in any case, so Jeff and I started from a Hopfield network. We heated it up, and we discovered that Boltzmann. It was Boltz, We called it the Boltzmann machine because it was fluctuating, and you could use physics to understand the, the equilibrium states. And we showed that in equilibrium, there was a learning algorithm for an arbitrarily as many uh, layers as you want. Uh, and in fact, even it's, it's really beautiful because it was a local algorithm, unlike backprop that requires global information of all the gradients and all the weights. Uh, it could all be done with just local correlations between pairs of neurons. So it was Hebbian. Hebbian plasticity, Bolson machine. We've solved the problem of multi-layer learning. We thought we had figured out how the brain works, but you know, it, it turned out to be a little bit more complicated. I remember that paper. Yes, that was that was um, was like eighty five or something. Is that right? Yeah, that, exactly. Uh, that, that was uh, yeah. That was uh, yeah. That that came out. The learning algorithm came out. The actual, I think we the first. Uh, that was that was the paper, cognitive science. Yes, eighty five. But so so okay. Well, I'm 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 still, uh, and I know. Um, I mean. Back to the the I mean the the time of perceptrons right, 
I mean, Marvin Minsky always used to claim that he didn't mean to kind of kill the field by by writing that book. Although like, you must have talked to him about it. I certainly oh, talked to him about oh, it. Oh, you know, well, you know, Marvin, you've talked to him a lot. You know him probably better than I do. But I, I actually have evidence for this <laughs> firsthand evidence. So at the a meeting that was held in 2006 at Dartmouth, the 50th anniversary of the 56th meeting on AI, and there were about, oh, I think about six or seven people at the meeting from the original meeting, right? This is 50 years later, so it's uh, these are old men now. Marvin was there. And at the end of the meeting, it was a banquet. And at the banquet, you know, each one of them got up and said what they thought about the meeting. It was, it was a very interesting meeting, looking forward and backwards. Uh, you know, the future of AI and where are we now? And so they asked for questions. So I got up and I asked Marvin a question. I said, well, there are people in neural networks that consider you to be the devil because of the fact that you held back the field for decades. Are you the devil? Okay. And and this, 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 this I, I, I've never seen this before. It was like, you know, I, I, I just, you know, suddenly he just got extremely animated and he just launched into this long tirade, you know, it was going on and on about, we didn't understand anything about scaling or complexity and blah, 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 that, you know, parody, it doesn't do parody and so forth. And he, and, you know, it was, it was all, you know, it was, it was clearly, I, you know, I had uh, pressed his button. And so I finally had to stop him because, you know, it was, it was getting embarrassing. And I said, Dr. Minsky, I asked you a binary question, yes or no. Are you the devil? And he kind yeah. of spluttered. He kind of spluttered for, you know, he didn't know what to say. And he finally said, yes, I'm the devil. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. That's very Marvin-esque. I don't know. Uh, uh, interesting. Um, now, I've, I've come to actually moderate it in the sense that I, I, I don't think his was the only reason. I think that may have contributed but I'll tell you, the I think the real reason is that in order to make progress, you needed a lot more computing. We, they didn't have it back then. But, you know, one of the ironies, Marvin, when he was a graduate student at Princeton, had actually made a, uh, you know, a, a physical electronic neural net thing. Yes. The SNARK or something. Was that what it was called? But I don't quite Snark know what it was. Sounds like something in Lewis Carroll, but... Uh... Yeah, we're right. I it think could it was... have been. Yeah, it could have been. No, no, you're, you're. you're I, I've heard that story, and and I don't. I'm not sure. I don't think it's anything published. But yeah, he he would build these little networks out of parts, you know, electrical components, and uh, you know, and and you know, I I wonder about the psychology there because he clearly must have been very intrigued, and 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 I wonder if he got burned or something that he turned his back on it. I don't know, but uh, he wrote his thesis on this. In the math department, right. and they didn't know what to make of it because you know nobody in the in the department it knew anything about the neural networks, and so they sent it over to the institute for advanced study, and the mathematicians there only talked to God, right? So <laughs> they sent they sent back the following cryptic comment that it may not be mathematics, but someday it will be, and they were That's right. They're absolutely yeah, right. that, that's, I wonder. I wonder who wrote that. I think von Neumann. I think had died by that point. I mean, von Neumann would have been somebody who I think you know because von Neumann was was pretty involved in this whole you know brains versus computers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Although I don't think very much. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I'm not sure he ever figured out. I, I don't think he really did. I mean, he had a whole analysis of probabilistic logics and so on, because he was convinced that, you know, uh, sort of error rates were a critical feature of brains versus computers and so on. But I don't think he ever worked on neural nets. I don't think he, I think he, he had read the McCulloch Pitts paper, but I don't think he ever worked on. Well, he was, that. he was, he, it is still in lectures uh, in, at Yale. He, he raised an interesting problem, which is that um, how is it that you prevent uh, the introduction of, of imprecision, you know, uh, noise or uh, error from propagating? And 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 he came up with redundancy as one way, uh, but it's still a very very interesting question, right? How is it that you can uh, the brain is so resistant to not not just a little bit of noise, but also you can scoop out a big piece of the brain <laughs> as long as it's not in a critical area that controls you know your breathing or something, you're you're okay. Uh, yeah, I'm sure the same would work. I'm sure if you took ChatGPT and you scooped out you know a billion weights. I'm sure it would do just fine. I, I think so too. And that's the point. It was called graceful degradation. And, and that has, I think, to do more with not, not so much redundancy being, uh, uh, that usually means I, having identical replicates that then right. work and you take the average. I, I think that it has something to do with multiple pathways, that there are many ways to solve the same problem, that the brain has advantage of, of, of you know converging input it's, and also the other thing that that is a major difference is that uh, the the brain has uh, it is probabilistic. It has to keep track of evidence, and and a lot of it comes in from different sensory systems, you know, vision, audition, and so forth, and it has to be combined, and and to come up with the best uh, guess about what was just said, you know, word. By the way, uh, you know, people who go, are going deaf. Uh, it helps if they're looking at the person's face because they can do lip reading, right? Because there's a lot of information about the sound from the lips. And so, but how do you combine that, right? You have to combine those two senses and you have to use probabilities in order to be able to eventually make the right decision. And by the way, uh, that's the way the uh, transformers work. What they do is they, they just don't pop out, uh, a, a, you know, a word because that that's the only word. But they uh, they assign probabilities to all the words, and the, and the right. ones that have the highest probabilities are the ones that are, are used for the next loop, for the next word in the next uh, uh, the, the subsequent uh, output. So coming back to the history for a minute, um, I mean, at some moment the physicists got involved. So sometime around maybe late fifties, early sixties, there started to be physicists who said, you know, these neural nets are a little bit like spin systems, and we can, you know, a little bit like. Uh, uh, you know, magnetic, you know, systems of, you know, the, the the neurons are a little bit like spins up and down and magnetic systems and things like that. And there can be analysis done that way. At least that's my, uh, I mean, I don't know whether whether those people are even, I mean, there were people like, I don't know, it was a fellow Ken Yellow or something who I remember running across at some point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so th there's a whole cast of characters from that era. Kayello was one of them. Uh, and actually, there was another guy who was at Irvine. I've forgotten his name now, but Gordon Shaw. Gordon Shaw, you got it. And and you're right; they had this intuition that you know you should be able to use uh, condensed matter physics to understand it. But these these were uh, isolated people who were publishing in obscure places, 
and I would say had little or no impact because they weren't part of a community. There wasn't a community. It was basically a lot of isolated people, very smart people, but going in different directions and it, it wasn't, wasn't really uh, adding up, you know? Right. And, and I, I, you know, and, and, the, and the other thing of course, is that the, the neuroscientists couldn't understand anything that they were saying because they didn't have any background. So, it was it was uh they didn't have any impact on the neuroscientists they may have had some impact on some of their colleagues but their colleagues didn't know anything about the brain so they couldn't help them what problem but, did they think they were solving uh okay they they i think in fact i i, I know uh, gordon shaw i knew him and i i talked to him a little bit about this and and he 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 really felt that there was some kind of collective phenomenon that was going on in the brain that was it was like a phase transition or something which allowed many neurons to work together collectively and he of course used analogies from physics as a way of understanding that like you know the magnet the phase transition magnetism and so forth and there's still people who kind of think about those lines of phase transitions but uh but the Okay, my my first experience with this group, by the way, was a meeting uh, that I attended in 1979 here in La Jolla at UCSD that was organized by Jeff Hinton. He was a postdoc here at the time, working with Dave Rummelhart. And later, that was a psychology. These were psychologists. They were cognitive psychologists. Jay McClellan, Dave Rummelhart, the PDP group was here in in the 80s. Uh, and, And so he organized a meeting. Uh, which was called Parallel Models of Associative Memory. And that was probably the most well-established neural network model. And, and the idea was you have an inputs and outputs, and then you're trying to store patterns in the weights. And, and you could ask questions like, how many patterns can you store and, and how much interference between them and so forth. And so he invited a, a, a bunch of, of these isolated people, uh, you know, working like Don uh, Geeman from Statistics, uh, uh, another guy who was very interesting, Kahonen, Teivo Kahonen from Finland, uh, had a, 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 a way of uh, using collective uh, neural networks to do categorization, uh, and 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 others uh, that uh, Jerry Feldman, who was a computer scientist from Rochester, uh, and, and you know, so we're talking about people from many different departments. And I was coming from physics. I was actually a postdoc at the time at Harvard Neurobiology working with Steve Kopler. So I, I was making a transition to neuroscience. But you'd already you'd already been involved with neural nets by, by the time I, well, I was just looking and I found a 1975 thing of yours about neural nets. I, 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 you're right about that, that I had already gotten bitten by the neural network bug before I got my PhD. And, uh, and I did that. Uh, pri- primarily on my own, but I, I was I was I had a lot of help from uh, John Hopfield, who was at Princeton at the time. But that was John Hopfield was a condensed matter physicist who came out of very much that physics, but a different tradition from like the Gordon Shaw world and so on. Is that it correct? It was. Uh, well, he was actually a biophysicist at the time, but you know he had done work earlier work uh, on some condensed matter problems, but. Uh, but no, but at he that was, point he was, he was working on more microscopic biophysics. Things like uh, hemoglobin, you know. Uh, I see. Which which is an interesting problem. There might be a phase transition there. You know, when you when you bind uh, oxygen and 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 when you give it up. 
and 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 uh, you know, and he had he actually he had a very influential idea about uh, uh, error correction. So when you when <clears throat> when DNA is being uh, when RNA is being translated to proteins, uh, if you if there's a certain error rate, you know, one part in, in I don't know a thousand or something, but that's not good enough because you know you can get all kinds of mutations then uh, in, in the proteins. So, and so he realized that you could fix it by error by if, uh, error error correction, but it would take energy and it has to be irreversible. Otherwise, it could go backwards. And so that turned out to be true. And and you know that that was a very important insight that comes from physics. And it was uh, subsequently experiments were done uh, at Bell Labs, interestingly, where he was a, uh, uh, I think uh, he spent he spent time there as a consultant. Uh, he was at Princeton. Uh, right. Uh, academic appointment but but you know so he was in that kind of tradition thinking about biological problems and he got bitten by the neuro by the neuroscience bug it was going around a lot of people were infected i was <laughs> and, and but but he he unlike me had access to all these meetings from you know because the neuroscientists thought you know, here's somebody's really smart you know we should invite him so he went to the uh there's a whole series of meetings at the Neuroscience Research Program in, in Boston, NRP, had these meetings where they brought in people from different areas of neuroscience to come together. For example, I, I saw my shelf one on neural coding. Ted Bullock was the uh, the person who put that one together. Very, very prescient. Uh, and and John would go to these meetings and he'd come back and tell me about them. Right, and I would hear all about the the wonderful, interesting things happening in neuroscience, and maybe even more uh, interested in trying to solve, uh, you know, figure out how the brain works. Uh, so that was that, that was uh, you know led to for him the the an eighty two PNAS paper which was the Hopfield network that right. had a huge influence uh, and and influence first on the physicists I think he like was the able to uh, bring into neuroscience people like Heim Sampolinsky now who's a ma major figure in uh, computational neuroscience. Uh, you know, uh, there was. Yeah, I, I remember. You know, I, he was at Caltech at that point, and so was I. And I heard about that. Uh, the you know that network idea probably in eighty eighty one something like that. And I was um, uh, the frustrating thing for me is that I never managed to actually reproduce his results. That is, I wrote programs that should have done what what his paper said. Uh, you know, the things that his paper uh, said, and they never worked. It never worked. Okay, Stephen. You had a bug in your program because I it it works for everybody else. <laughs> in other words, oh wait a second. Okay, so there's actually a subtlety here, very interesting subtlety. So it would only work if you did the updates asynchronously. Yes, yes, yes. I know. If you try to do it synchronously, it would it would go into you know limit cycles and a lot of other things. But but if you did it asynchronously, it was guaranteed, literally mathematically guaranteed to converge. By but as I recall, I mean what I tried to do was to map out the the uh, you know it's a you know the big idea is you get these attractors where you know there'll be a bunch of possible inputs and they all evolve to a single possible output. I mean that 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 multiple it, it's, uh, it, it, multiple uh, local minima that uh, were uh, point attractors and could be used for doing what's what's called uh, completion. <clears throat> In other words, you give it a half of a vector, which puts you close. Is the basin, and then it would complete the vector and, and give you the entire output. So it's you a know, path completion. Because I'm a good archivist, I'm I'm sure I have my actual program. 
from that time. I <laughs> okay. need to go find out. No, I'm not accusing you of 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 making a mistake in your program. I'm just saying that that the, you must have had uh, you know you putting in the wrong inputs or something, and it could be that you were looking at the wrong output even. But okay, but but so you know the point there was this was essentially a a mathematical structure not particularly intended at the time i think to have direct sort of correspondence with things in the brain but a mathematical structure which would allow you to do this thing of of going from many possible inputs that could represent i don't know a letter a or, or you know many possible things that might right. be like a letter a many possible things that could be like a letter b right. and it would go to the actual sort of That's single right. point attractor of it's an A or it's and, a B. And the reason why that was an important step forward is that up to that time, the people who were working on these associative networks were, worked with linear ones, linear summations, and, and then a threshold. And the uh, Hotfield showed that you could do the same thing in a highly nonlinear network. And, and, and you could uh, store, and you could actually uh, estimate the, the capacity very nicely. And it had a lot of nice properties. And like I say, it led to the Bolson machine and a, and a really nice learning algorithm. So it, it was a breakthrough, I think, in 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 conceptual. Yeah, right. No, actually, I remember this capacity thing. It's like the how many vectors can you store in before the thing? You know, how how many attractors fit in your in your space, so to speak? How how many distinct? Um, uh, yes, that that was that was um, one of the that was a one of the uh, the 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 they you could you can actually analytically show what that was I think it was like 0.19 n where n is the number of neurons, right? But so okay, so this happened, and that I mean that one feature of that network is it's it's very recurrent in the sense that you put an right. input and it keeps on you know doing more stuff to the same input. It's not one of these kind of just feed forward ripples through type type things. It, it, you know, that is that so that's what made it impressive is that he harnessed the nonlinearity to do something interesting. Right. So okay, so what happened next? So then then uh, that that was that was a, a a single network where you kept on recirculating through the network as opposed right. to multiple layers of perceptron like network. Yeah that that's that's right. And and uh, because of the fact that it, it it was kind of limited uh you know there were there were no hidden units in it uh it was very difficult you know to make build on that although a lot of people i think were thinking about uh for example uh i know that the, the re recently i've gotten very interested in learning sequences and there were people who would put in asymmetric connections, you know, that would allow the network to settle into one local minimum and then jump into an, another one, right? So there, 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 I think even, you know, there, there, the people you probably know, David Kleinfeld, I think here was one of the people, but, uh, you know, there was a tremendous amount of activity. It was really exciting. And the neural information processing systems meeting brought together the physicists with the neuroscientists and the computer scientists and the statisticians and people studying computer vision and speech recognition, they all came to these meetings that uh, were organized uh, originally by uh, uh, Posner, Ed Posner at Caltech. Uh, but then he tr died tragically and I became the president of the foundation that ran it and have been ever since. And 
what was exciting back then, it was really exciting just to be able to meet people from all those different fields. And they all had the same problem, which was that the tools and techniques that were available at the time didn't allow them to make progress with vision or speech or robotics uh, it, with traditional tools that they had. And they, they, they just thought that there had to be another algorithm or architecture that would do that. Neural networks were very promising because there was learning algorithms, right? You might be able to learn the solution. And, and so and we had, a, the problem was that it was a, a tower of Babel because everybody would, would be speaking in their jargon and it was hard for other people to understand what they were saying. Uh, you know, the, 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 the physicists would talk about, you know, all these equations and attractors and so forth. And the neuroscientists couldn't figure out what that was. And, and then the neuroscientists would come up and talk about, you know, all the, all of these uh, Greek words for different parts of the brain, the lateral geniculate nucleus. I mean, you know, it was all Greek, uh, you know, impenetrable. And, and then the only ones that actually, I think got through were the engineers because they actually build things and they could demonstrate them, right? They say, here, look, look what I'm building here. Here's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> they, you know, they have uh, their own language, but they would at least be able to uh, explain, you know, what, what, what the, what the goal was and how they you, did it. You didn't mention the mathematicians who I think were not, I mean, the, you know, the attractor concept was one really from mathematicians, not so much from physicists, but I don't think yeah, they well, were. Well, the, the, the mathematicians came to mainly statisticians, but there were some basic mathematicians, dynamical systems people, but not not as many. Uh, not, yeah. In retrospect, uh, I think that's one of the things that was missing was that people, I think we didn't appreciate how important dynamics is going to be uh, and understanding the trajectories in these very large scale networks. Although the truth is dynamics is not, I mean, you know, in a chat GPT, for example, it is a feed forward network. There isn't, you know, there isn't really dynamics. Ah, okay, okay. Well, uh, you know, you'd be surprised. Okay, first of all, there's a loop that takes you from the output Indeed. to the input and right. it circulates. That's dynamics. Right. It's a it's an outer loop, so to speak. It's an outer loop, but that outer loop is found in the brain too, with the between the cortex and the basal ganglia. Then that's how. I'm able to speak to you in a sequence of words because my basal ganglia has learned how to how to do that uh, and, and is with automatically without having to think about it. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.